This is an ABC podcast. Hi, it's Elizabeth. Before we start today's show, I have some sad news. Today is my last as the host of Days Like These. Nothing bad has happened. I'm off to work on some new creative projects, some professional, some personal. This has been a dream job for me and I have loved every minute of it. I'm so grateful to all the people who share their incredible stories on this show and, of course, to you for coming along for the ride. Please stay in touch with me. You can always find me on Twitter or on Instagram. I'm at Elizabeth Kulas, K-U-L-A-S. Days like these will continue, so please keep an eye out for a new season of episodes, which will be in your feed soon. OK, here's the show. I'm feeling incredibly restless. I'm talking about, like, my body, almost like it's got butterflies in it all day, every day. There was energy coming out of me, but I had nowhere to put it. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Welcome to Days Like These. As Brendan Newton sits in a uni lecture theatre one afternoon, he's torn. This is the path he's supposed to take, the one his parents have hoped for, where he studies medical science, gets a degree, finds a job. But as he listens to another anatomy lecture, as much as he tries to concentrate, he feels called to abandon campus for the water, to be out there somewhere, pushing himself to the very limit with just his body and his board. Eventually, this call will see Brendan redefine his life and what everybody thought possible in the sport of bodyboarding. (laughs) Brendan grew up near Mona Vale on Sydney's northern beaches. Living there in the 90s, if you were into sport, you were into bodyboarding. Bodyboarders were the coolest people ever and I wanted to be one of them and I started to sort of chase that. With just a foam board, maybe some flippers, these kids are the heroes of Mona Vale, making magic from air and water. And even early on as a teenager, Brendan loves the physicality of the sport. You hold the wave, you're in there feeling every touch of water and, and you manipulate and contort your body in a way that's like, it just, it's gritty. For me, it was the closest thing you could become to being like a seal or a dolphin or some sort of a otter. By the time he's at uni in the early 2000s, Brendan squeezes in sessions on the board around his classes, trying to release some of that pent-up energy. At night, he returns to the same VHS video over and over again, watching as his bodyboarding heroes tear it up at a famous break called Chopu in Tahiti. So when the holidays roll around at the end of the first semester, there's really only one place to go. I went to the, the university travel agent, and I put down $1,500 on a return ticket to Tahiti, Papiete, Sydney to Papiete. Brendan arrives in Papiete carrying a small backpack and his favourite board. He gets on a local bus, and about an hour and a half later, he's dropped into a dusty cul-de-sac surrounded by mountains. Right away, he learns that a bunch of other Aussie bodyboarders, friends of his from way back, are also in town. There was a, about a 50 of us in Australia that really took to the seas and found all the, the most cylindrical, heavy waves on the planet. And we'd go and spend time there. It was like this little kind of cult. It was, it was extreme. These guys tell Brendan he's arrived just in time. There's a huge swell building and it's due to arrive tonight. 
Within a few hours, they're paddling out for his first session at Chobu. By the time the sun was going down, the waves were about as big as telegraph poles. They were so huge and I thought, this is my moment. These are by far the biggest and heaviest waves that Brendan has ever encountered. You can feel the rush of the water past your skin much faster and you can feel how your, your guts drop kind of like on a roller coaster. And you, you kind of like, wow, this is different. This is a whole new thing. People started telling me like, I can't believe you're catching those waves. But no one was taking photos, so we just didn't know what it looked like from an external point of view. Brendan goes out like this day after day. He's in his element. And I was scooping into these barrels. I remember feeling like a ballet dancer. I just felt so in sync with the wave face, three tonnes of water throwing over my head and then riding through the barrel, getting spat out and then kind of contorting my body out the back and paddling back out again. And I remember seeing a childhood hero, his name's Chris Wan, he's a native Hawaiian guy. And then Chris Wan said to me, oh, you've just got this down. And I was like, yeah, I do. This goes on for two blissful weeks. And then on the last day of his holiday, Brendan is out getting a final session in before catching his flight back. When he sees some friends from Australia paddling out towards him. They said to me, hey, Brendan, before you go to the airport to fly, can we pray with you? Brendan had been raised a Catholic. He'd always had a strong sense of faith. At 14, when his family stopped going to Mass together, he'd still ride his BMX down to the local church to recite his prayers. But even he's a little surprised by the offer to pray here, sitting up on their boards in the channel at Chopu. And... They were saying in in sort of prayer language, like, hey, God, I just know that you are going to care for Brendan while he leads the bodyboarding industry. I was in my head going back to med science, but when they started to sort of speak in this kind of hopefulness that I was going to be in bodyboarding for a long time, I started to think about it. I was like, lead the body. Okay. And it was almost like I either go sit at home with... 218-year-olds and slowly go through these modules at university, taking notes and sitting in a room and then maybe getting drunk on the weekend for my release. Or I could throw my body into these kind of waves, you know, maybe for the next 10 years, and I can be a professional. This is legitimate. I can do it. And by the time I landed back in Sydney, I went home and told my dad, look, I'm going to give this thing everything and I reckon I can do it. It's as if from the moment that Brendan makes this decision, a blossoming career just unfurls right in front of him. Within months, he's gaining attention, sponsorship deals. He starts travelling more, looking for the best waves he can find. Brendan meets a young filmmaker from the UK and soon they're working together, documenting his exploits at sea. There are waves in WA, Tasmania, and then they head to Europe. And we set out on this mission across the Atlantic Islands and it was just like, like we'd go to all these spots that um, the mainstream surfing community hadn't really latched onto yet. All these sort of volcanic rock platforms that took the big pounding swells of the Atlantic Ocean. And then we went to Azores and Madeira and Ireland. Together, they release a bodyboarding film called Against the Grain. It puts Brendan on the map. 
The next year, there's a follow-up, which quickly becomes a cult hit. Brendan's star is rising, burning fast and bright. Oh, I think I had 140 pages in magazines in two years. It was like the most accelerated bodyboarding fame on the planet, maybe. Like, um, like I think it was pretty unparalleled. Publicly, Brendan's life has never been better. But after two years of increasing fame and success, internally, it's a different story. I was out surfing 15-foot waves and the waves didn't bother me. It was what was in my head. Brendan's anxious, agitated. Behaviours he'd had glimpses of since his teen years begin to surface with added intensity. He's increasingly compelled to complete certain rituals in a certain order, trying to find rest and comfort. And he does have some sense of what might be going on. I had read a pamphlet in a GP surgery about OCD, and I remember reading it thinking, oh, shit, that's me. But what had developed in my mind was pure OCD. Pure OCD is a subset of obsessive-compulsive disorder. Instead of repeated physical checks or activities, pure OCD takes place purely in a person's mind. For many... It's characterised by intrusive thoughts. It's like, don't think of the pink elephant. Don't think of the pink elephant. But sure enough, it increases the poignancy and the fear of that thought. So what your mind does is, boom, the thought comes back. So pure OCD is this kind of silent war that's happening in your mind. And the anxiety levels are so sky high that it's your body sweating heart rate's pulsing, and it's just excruciatingly painful. In an effort to soothe the torturous repetition of thoughts, Brendan turns to his faith. In particular, he becomes fixated on a single prayer, the sinner's prayer, which asks for salvation, for forgiveness. But then my next compulsion was that I hadn't been able to say the sinner's prayer properly. One night on a bodyboarding trip, two years into his professional career, Brendan reaches breaking point. Devil, back off in Jesus' name. I remember marching around a, a bungalow in, in Portugal. It was like 1am and I was saying this sinner's prayer over and over and I could never say it right. And it was, I was sweating and I was pulsing and pounding the pavement. I was just like so extremely anxious and it was, it was just fucking doing my head in and I knew something was wrong. Brendan flies home from Europe and goes straight to a doctor. And I just couldn't handle it anymore. I need help. Went and saw specialists and researched it, and uh, that started my, I suppose, clinician journey uh, for OCD. At 20, Brendan swaps the travel, the extreme waves, the filmmaking, for cognitive behavioural therapy and exposure exercises. He moves back in with his parents in Mona Vale and tries to get the symptoms of the OCD under control. He's in recovery for months, slowly rebuilding. But it takes a year before Brendan's well enough to start dreaming again. And it's then that a project begins to form in his mind. I remember getting out a little exercise book and starting drawing up plans and names and gear we needed and I don't know, I just had this hunger to do something that completely out of this world um, that was right off the edge of anything anyone had ever seen before. 
Soon, Riptide magazine commissions Brendan to fill an entire upcoming issue. His job is to find some of the biggest waves in the world, to ride them, and then to document it over a hundred pages of glossy images. And Brendan knows just the wild, remote location that he wants to track down. If you picture the Great Australian Bight, the westest most point of that Great Australian Bight is an archipelago of 104 islands, and they literally sit off the bottom of these huge sand dunes and rock platforms in the middle of nowhere. This is a remote area about 150 kilometres from Esperance in Western Australia. It's known by some as the Recherche Archipelago, but others call it the Bay of Isles. In addition to the 100 or so islands, there were over a 1,000 rocky outcrops dotted around this rugged patch of ocean. Out in the water, you're far more likely to encounter a fur seal or a great white shark than another human. And stories of the waves around this fabled cluster of islands had begun circulating through the Whisper Network. So that word got to, obviously, a few body waters and ended up in my friend's ear and, by extension, in my ear. And here I was leading this project and, yeah, off we went. Brendan compiles a crew of six. There are a couple of other experienced bodyboarders, plus a videographer and photographer. As for the gear, there's a pair of four-wheel drives, a jet ski, and a clunky old boat with an outboard motor. The budget is stretched to include a depth finder and some torches, but there's no radio and no sat phone. After arriving in WA, they watch the weather maps closely and they wait for the right conditions offshore. Brendan knows that they haven't yet found the waves that they've come looking for. And he's also aware that the magazine's submission deadline is creeping ever closer. So when the forecast shows a healthy swell late one afternoon, they jump at the chance to get moving. Immediately, they plan to take the boat and the jet ski through 40 kilometres of this archipelago to a protected bay where they'll camp overnight before setting out to scout waves first thing in the morning. And so we launch with about 45 minutes of light left. Two of their crew are going to ride the jet ski to this location. Two others will take the four-wheel drives through the dunes and meet them at the other end. That leaves Brendan to take the boat with his buddy, Ryan Maddock, who's also an experienced bodyboarder. So we launch the boat and it's it's pretty gnarly um, in three metres, four metres of swell. And I remember just motoring towards this really big wave and just poking the nose over the top of the wave and our boat went right up vertical and Ryan Maddock was in the front sort of hung on and we, oh, it was so scary but then the boat dropped down on its base and, and landed back flat and there we were, we made it out. The boat is past the break now, through the worst of it. Brendan, who's controlling the outboard's tiller, breathes a sigh of relief. I motored quite far out just to kind of settle and relax and know that no waves were going to get me and I assumed the jet ski would come straight out to us. In the fading light and with such a huge swell, Brendan and Ryan can't see the shore anymore. So they wait for the jet ski, straining to hear its engine over the waves. But as the minutes pass, it doesn't appear. Maybe five and then it dragged to ten and fifteen. I thought, oh, this is getting too long. Where are they? And then we started to stress. We thought, oh, no, it's getting pitch black. And we're in the ocean. 
no radio, tiny little old boat, and there's just two of us. It's kind of that feeling when you're four years old and you're in the shopping centre and you suddenly realise that you've lost your mum. You know the, when your gut sinks and you're just like, oh my goodness, what have I done? As night begins to fall, the boat has turned and they're disoriented, confused. Brendan thinks he can see the faint outline of a mountain in the distance, but he can no longer tell if that's the mainland or some other island. In the darkness, Ryan speaks for the first time in a long time. I remember him saying, this is really serious, mate. But the way he said it, it made me think, holy shit. He, like, he's really scared for his life here. They're both scared, lost. But they decide they have no choice now but to try and navigate their way 40 kilometres to the sheltered bay where the group had agreed to meet. They'll need to somehow weave their way around an untold number of rocky outcrops that lie ahead in the darkness, like granite mushrooms blooming up from under the sea. I start to sort of try to get my senses. I start to sort of try to feel the sensations of like where my elbows are, where my eyes are looking, potentially where, where the coast would be, where the shore would be. As Brendan controls the boat, Ryan has his eyes glued on the depth finder. Because as soon as obviously the depth finder indicated that our depth was getting shallower, um, that meant that we're getting closer to an island. They start to move gingerly forward, trying to make their way through this watery maze in the dark. Visibility is down to five or ten metres in front of the boat. And at one point the depth metre started to get lower and lower, and um, it got down to ten metres. And then I remember thinking, OK, we're approaching an island, and that means there's big waves merging and crumbling onto the island. They can't see anything, but if the depth finder is right and they hit whatever lies ahead of them, they could be spending the night drifting at sea. So what I did is a right angle turn, went about 400 metres, what I thought to be 400 metres, and then did another right angle turn to go back on course. And sure enough, the depth meter went higher and higher, so we thought, okay, we've avoided that clump of rocks or whatever it was. After this near miss, they're both pumping with adrenaline. But then, quietly and slowly at first, Brendan notices a shift. And then I thought, we can trust God with this. Like, we could, um, we could believe this one particular kind of enlivening song that both Ryan and I knew, and we started singing really loud. <laughs> How great is our God, sing with me. How great is our God, and all will sing. How great, how great is our God. And we started singing this. It gave me courage. We sort of were mobilised again, you know. We weren't frozen in fear. And as they inch their way forward, the sea still pitching like liquid mercury underneath them. Something catches Brendan's attention. I looked up and there was this string of stars, sort of three stars, and I thought, yep, right down the bottom left of this, that string of stars is where I should navigate to. In my gut, in my intuition, I knew that that's where I should head. So I started accelerating towards the star and 
just kept on motoring towards and that movement just sort of gave me a bit of bit of strength you know we settled into this rhythm of following the star and just kind of motoring about half an hour later we sort of noticed the boat was less battered by a swell it was kind of wasn't lifting as high when the swell went under us because I just remember it suddenly being really flat water and I knew oh this feels like we're on a lake but really calm and I thought oh this feels around about where we should be and I knew that you know if we can manage to anchor here then when the sun comes up we can we can figure out where we are so we did that we had a tent on um, on the boat and we pitched the tent on the boat floor I think we got in our wetsuits to keep warm and I think we had crackers and tuna and we we laid there on on the boards and then we fell asleep The next morning, after eight hours of rest, Brendan and Ryan wake up with the light. They find that they're anchored in a protected inlet, surrounded by large hills. They can't tell if it's an island or the mainland ahead, but they spot a white four-wheel drive not far from shore. Brendan swims over to ask for any spare petrol that they might be able to share. I got up to the four-wheel drive and this guy was kind of happy to see me. He sort of said, oh... Oh, you must be the guys uh, they're all looking for. I thought, oh, dear. (laughs) Then the man beckons Brendan over to his car and opens the door. And he turned up the radio and the announcement, two men missing at sea, the infrared helicopter's been searching for them all night. I just was like, oh, no, like, no, (laughs) that's us. The man gives them a jerry can of petrol and some directions. Brendan and Ryan return to the boat and navigate their way to the bay where their friends had spent the night. They'd only overshot it by a small margin the night before, and within 20 minutes, they pull into a usually calm bay. But today is filled with activity. 40 people in all these, like, fluorescent vests and a big red helicopter and all these satellite phones and, like all these rescue SES workers. As they pull into view, there are cheers from the assembled crew. But as soon as they step ashore, the celebrations are interrupted. One of the SES workers says, I've got a sat phone, I'm going to call your mum, put you in touch, here you go. It's clear as Brendan takes the phone that he has caused his family pain. Overnight, they'd been told he was lost at sea that the infrared helicopters had made no sighting, that they'd need to expect the worst. This wasn't anticipated grief he'd caused them. It was the real thing. And Brendan can see that he's caused this hurt. But he's also focused on one thing above all else. His deadline for the magazine is now three days overdue. Out here, he may have been lucky enough to survive a night at sea, but he still hadn't got what he really wanted. To ride these waves and to capture the front cover that he'd been sent out here to get. Most part of me was like, I'm I'm here to do a job. This is like my life. Our plan was that the following day, we were gonna go and do what we came to do, which is ride these waves. As the sun comes up the next morning, they're about 15 kilometers offshore 
and they happen across an impressive wave. It's big and hollow. But as they get closer, they can see it's washy and the conditions aren't quite right to make it work. A few hours pass this way as they continue scouting. And by mid-morning, the group decides they'll take the scenic route back to shore, weaving around some of the islands and rock formations on their way in to see what they can find. I sort of took a back seat, just relaxing until the boys did what they wanted to do. And, and then I saw like sort of some like exclamation on the, the guys' faces, cheering and like looking surprised. And they said, oh, there's this big explosion. It looks like a big wave. And I looked up and over and you could see these, these just, it looked like just a little hole on the surface of the ocean doing these giant explosions. So if you imagine a big swell line marching in one uniform line and it just so happens that the gradient of this rock shelf as it sunk into the big blue deep sea had been a perfect climate for this wave to suck up to apex and then to barrel to basically provide this moving wave that is just so visually appealing it fucking makes you lose your mind like it's <laughs> it's crazy as brendan stands there on the boat he's agape at what's before him he sees that what makes this wave possible this rock shelf in the middle of the ocean that causes this wave to form it's also the thing that makes this wave incredibly dangerous because as each wave gathers speed and then crests and then collapses in on itself it ends abruptly by crashing onto a barely submerged rock shelf. Brendan, leading the crew, he's not sure that this wave is even rideable. We're not like idiots. We're not just going to jump off a building. We're like some of the best bodyboarders in the world and we, we know our art form is to go to the edge, but not off the edge. Brendan stands there trying to work out if it's safe to get any closer to this cement mixer of a wave. You've got to try to get leverage from the wave as it starts to break and get speed towards the channel. But as you do that, the whole thing is slurping around you. So you've got to kind of angle yourself in a way where the board rides through the barrel and out into safety, into the deep water, and not pitched up and over onto this rock, yeah. Brendan scans the wave, reading its shape, its form and velocity, and he realises this is it. This is the one. But it has to be a certainty involved with it, you know, like a faith. And I, I sort of have that moment on the boat and I said, OK, let's try. Put my flippers on and hopped into this big blue ocean and we had a little prayer. Uh, we're just like, OK, protect us. Brendan gathers his nerves and decides to take the first wave test the physics of this thing. He sees the line of swell approaching the reef, gathering speed, becoming steeper and steeper. Paddling madly, he soon realises the one he's chosen has begun to fizzle out from underneath him. It was kind of half a, half a wave, I just, just dropped into it, didn't come out of it, just got a little bit splattered and um, it was just, I think, just trying to get the nerves out of me. So Brendan turns around, he steals himself and he paddles back out. He's ready to go for a second. 
we paddle over to the peak of the wave and, and there's just so much water moving because you're, you're handling ocean, you're not handling beach waves, you know, like this ocean swells coming from South Africa and Antarctica. It's like the most brutal, raw ocean you can kind of find. And even just sitting in the lineup is hard to maintain your position. But now Brennan's about to leave the lineup, surging toward him from the horizon. He can see his next opportunity. I remember this one swell line coming through and I could see it sort of about sort of 20 metres away from me. I thought, OK, I'll sort of position myself and I kick, kick, kick and I and just... The wave lifted up under me as I kicked myself into it and it turned into almost like a triangular apex and it, it gave me momentum from behind me. And the whole thing started to wrap up and over me and my whole body lengthened to the point where I couldn't really lengthen any longer. So the crest, I start slide down it and, and the way I lengthen my body just kind of grooves around the inside of this huge cylinder. The thing that I was gawking at from the channel on the boat, I was in it. The whole thing worked around me like, and that's the ideal bodyboarding. The whole wave does all the work and you just contort and position yourself. It was a fucking miracle. Like, I just was in a perfect position. And then I just hear, holy shit. And we are celebrating and it was like, I'm kicking past the boat and, and just elated, completely elated. I remember feeling invincible and weightless. Most people might be satisfied with that, but not Brendan. I was so confident that God was caring for me. So I thought, well, I might as well just catch the biggest wave on the planet. So he goes in for number three. And it wasn't as friendly. It was like much thicker, uh, a bit bigger. This wave has an intensity, a wildness. It's much harder to anticipate than the one that had come before. And as soon as Brendan has launched into it, it's shifting and mutating underneath him. That's when I got kind of launched into the barrel, didn't sort of scoop me up, it sort of like pitched me out. And then I rolled and my legs over my head, I let go of my board and I ended up cartwheeling through a huge sort of 10 metre barrel, free falling and kind of cartwheeling over myself. And then I remember as the wave all closed in on itself, and spat out into the channel. I was obviously in the big washing machine. I rolled along the bottom of the ocean a few times, you know, up and over that, that dry rock piece. Unlike that second perfect wave, Brendan has gone right through the eye of the storm this time. The sharp granite rock bed that poked up out of the water has cut right through his wetsuit, leaving bloody streaks on his arms, his head, his face. Brendan's pulled into the boat where a crowd of worried faces stare back at him. You know, my wetsuit's sort of hanging off me and my lip's bleeding and my lip's kind of hanging to the side a little bit. The wound on Brendan's face makes a hole big enough for his mates to feed some Panadol through as they wrap the rest of his head in bandages. They motor the 15 kilometres to shore and then four-wheel drive through the dunes before an hour-long trip to Esperance Hospital. It would take a plastic surgeon and 63 stitches to put Brendan back together. It's widely accepted that he was the first person to ever successfully ride that wave. And after the footage in the magazine make it and him famous, the wave would get a name of its own, 
Salty Dogs. After conquering Salty Dogs, Brendan packed up his professional bodyboarding career. He was about to get married, wanted to settle into the next chapter of his life. It wasn't an easy decision, but he knew it was the right one. It was like a trust thing. I knew I'd set out to do this thing and I knew that I'd done it. You know, like I'd done everything I wanted to do. I even wrote an email to everyone I knew saying, um, that's me, I'm done. What about your relationship to your faith? How do you describe that now? My faith is like deeper than it's ever been and more stable, less erratic and more reliable in me. And over the years, Brendan has also figured out how to live alongside OCD. It's been a really big journey. It's been the hardest thing um, I've ever faced. But um, I have thankfully come to a point where I have peace and I've never really tried to be anyone else. So I'm thankful that that was a part of me. You can hear more from Brendan on his podcast, The Grey Space with Brendan Newton. Find it wherever you listen. Thank you so much for listening to Days Like These. It's been my greatest pleasure and privilege to host this wonderful show. Today's episode was made on the lands of the Gadigal and Wurundjeri peoples, and it was reported by me, Elizabeth Kulas. Sound design and engineering by Russell Stapleton. The supervising producer was Sophie Townsend. Our producer is Lisa DeVisi. Our executive producers are Sophie Townsend and Tom Wright. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.